Welcome to the American Society of Pediatric Hematology Oncology podcast, known as the ASPOcast. This six-part series, The Road to Clinician Well-Being, will focus on various issues related to clinician wellness. Greetings to the ASPO community. This is Deborah Zabladil, and I am here today with the next installment of the ASPOcast series, The Road to Clinician Well-Being. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Adit Tal and Dr. Jonathan Fish. Dr. Tal is an assistant professor of pediatric hematology, oncology, marrow, and blood cell transplantation at the Children's Hospital at Montefiore and the Albert Einstein College of Medicine. She is also assistant program director for the pediatric hematology oncology fellowship program. Dr. Jonathan Fish is head of stem cell transplant and cellular therapy and medical director of the Survivors Facing Forward program at Cohen Children's Medical Center, Northwell. He is associate professor of pediatrics at the Donald and Barbara Zucker School of Medicine at Hofstra, Northwell. And John and Adit also happen to be the chair and the vice chair of ASFO's wellness special interest group for the organization. And that can be found at ASFO.org forward slash membership forward slash special interest groups slash overview. So welcome Adit and John. So happy to have you with us today. Thank you so much, Deborah. So glad to be here and thank you for doing this. This is a tremendous undertaking and I think of real importance. Thank you so much for having us here today. Really excited about this opportunity. It's great to have you both because as the chair and the vice chair of this special interest group on wellness, you have had the opportunity to listen to the previous podcast, the five podcasts that have come before this one. And so today we're going to do a little bit of a retrospective with a focus on how to apply some of the ideas that we've heard to the front lines of pediatric hematology and oncology. And I would like both of you, as we talk through these different weeks of the podcast series, to share your learnings, your perspectives, and your takeaways from the experts that we have, have been interviewing. I will start with week one, where we heard from Dr. Dan Murphy from Stanford about physician wellness overall. As we learned, Stanford has a WellMD center, so Dr. Murphy is very close to issues around this subject. John, I'd like to ask you this question. What was it about Dr. Murphy's comments that resonated with you? It was so great to hear from Dr. Murphy and the great work that they've done over at Stanford. I find the entire idea of how they've approached this and institutionalized it to be really inspiring. But the one aspect that really hit me is what can an individual do to help reduce burnout or to help address it in themselves or in others that they see around them? And he pointed out in the Stanford WellMD model that there's three parts to it. He described a culture of wellness, which is leadership and organizational behaviors that promote well-being for physicians. There's efficiency of practice, which is getting rid of the impediments, the things that are there every day that are blocking you from doing the work you want to do. And there's personal resilience. And two of those are really institutional and in the realm of control of the leaders. And that's the culture of wellness and the efficiency of practice. And there's only one third of what's driving the professional satisfaction. That's your personal resilience. So if you're a leader, then you really need to address number one and two and really focus on building that culture. But what do you do if you are 
not in a position of high up leadership. All of us are leaders in one way or another, and we all have our spheres of influence. But what do you do if you're that individual? How can you build your personal resilience while you try to figure out how to address the culture of wellness and efficiency of practice? And he brought up that there's a danger in feeling that we are victims and powerless. Building personal resilience won't address one and two, but it might mitigate those factors while one figures out how to address one's situation. And then he brought up the literature, which suggests that if 20% of what you're doing over the course of the day is something you really enjoy, and importantly, if you're aware of that 20%, that is enough to really be protective. And so I think the takeaway that I took as, a, as an individual on the front lines for now is that while I can try to influence one and two on a leadership level, it's important me, for me to pay attention to what it is that I enjoy in my work in the day, to really focus on it. Hopefully it occupies 20% of that time and just to be aware and mindful of that 20%. And that seems like something I could do today. Like that, that is a practicum that I can take and apply now that can hopefully be protective for burnout. And it seems very empowering, doesn't it? To be able to say, there is something that I can do today or tomorrow that will impact my not getting burned out. And only 20% of your work really needs to hit that level, that sort of gold standard level of really engaging you. I, I thought that was interesting. I'm going to turn to Adit now. And Adit, we moved on in week two to mental health and burnout. And we spoke with Dr. Maggie Ray from UC Davis for that podcast. Have you ever felt in your own medical career that you were experiencing some form of burnout? And how did you deal with it? Or how did what Dr. Ray say resonate with you? I definitely had felt an element of burnout during my training in my fellowship program. And I think it was very difficult for me and overwhelming as a trainee to manage complex patients, to deal with end-of-life care, and at the same time, learn how to become an independent researcher and thinker. And I think that there are a lot of people in their training and in their early career that are struggling with that balance. I think that there's a lot of academic pressure within pediatric hematology oncology, and I think that resonates with the community as well. So I wouldn't be surprised if other trainees and people all throughout their career feel this way. And so when I was listening to Maggie speak, a lot of what she said, I really had to think deeply about. She focused a lot on COVID and how we have been thrown into this war with COVID. And she even compared it to military organizations and getting ready for crisis and comparing this to a post-traumatic response. And I think that can definitely be something that's during COVID, but it can be throughout your medical training, especially in PT Monk. So even when Maggie focused on COVID, I think you can extend that to PT Monk training. I think I first wanna talk about the positives that Maggie brought out. She said, there's a shift at the higher level and with leadership throughout the medical community, hiring chief wellness officers and really focusing on mental health and prevention of burnout within the medical community. And we've already seen some changes with COVID and there's been more emphasis on peer support she spoke about and providing additional mental health treatment support. So I think that positive really resonated with me. It gave me some hope for the future that with our trainees and with our faculty members, we're really going to focus on that more even in the aftermath of COVID, whenever that may be. And then the other thing I think she spoke about is when people talk about burnout, how do they know that there's burnout? And it's really two things. People are leaving medical practice 
and patients are satisfied less. And those two things are really important to me and resonate with me when I was burnt out. Am I providing the best care for my patients? And when people are burnt out, they don't. They're exhausted. They're tired. They can't really focus on why they're doing what they're doing. And therefore the patients suffer. And when I think about that, that motivates me to become well. And I think especially in PT Monk, we have so much care for our community and our patients that this will probably also resonate with other people within our field. And then people leaving practice, I think this is something very serious that we really have to think about. Becoming so overwhelmed and so burnt out that they can't see themselves continuing on anymore. We train for so many years and we go through so much to get to where we are. Me being in my early career, I kind of see that behind me. It's pretty recent. And so to give that all up because we're so overwhelmed, that makes me very sad. And, and I can definitely say that I felt that before. Like, why am I doing this? Is this worth it? Right. And ultimately, I hope that our community and people that are feeling this way can get to a place where they can realize and recognize what made them get here in the first place. I think it can relate to what John was saying a few minutes ago about how you just have to find that 20% of your day that you feel accomplished, that makes you happy. So I think that's what we need to get to, to, for providers to see that it may not be the majority of your career or the majority of your day, but if you can find that one thing that really makes you happy, then you can become well. So I think Maggie saying that really got to me and made me realize why I'm doing what I'm doing. So, you know, it was a general theme in all the podcasts, but definitely something that Maggie said. And then the last thing that really resonated with me, she said, we must destigmatize burnout and access. So leaders have to talk about their challenges to make everyone else feel like it's okay. It's normal. Don't allow that stigma that accessing care means you're not good enough is exactly what she said. And don't let that be a barrier for yourself or your trainees and colleagues. So, you know, as assistant fellowship director, I have a lot of trainees come to me with these feelings. And I think the first step is talking about those feelings and me telling them, you know, I felt the same way and this is what helped me get through it. So every leader, no matter where we are in our careers needs to talk about it. And only then can we get through it together. That's a great response. I was speaking to a medical student yesterday who said she's only allowed to be in the hospital 80 hours a week. You know, and I thought, wow, but I'm sure for many people who are listening, that does sound low. And, you know, they probably remember days when they were there far many more hours than that. So do you think, Adit, I want to just sort of as a follow-up question, do you think there, there still is a stigma about seeking help for burnout and for stress and those kinds of things? Do you think that there, there is still a barrier? I think that where I trained and where I work, that stigma is slowly being broken down. I think those barriers are slowly being broken away. And I think a lot of that has to do with COVID, right? People are asking more, are you okay? Do you need something? Can I help you? So I'm seeing that shift like Maggie spoke about, but you know, I definitely, while I'd like to say there is no stigma, I think there always will be a stigma. People don't talk about whether they're getting therapy or what they're doing to be well, because everyone always wants to be the best. And in their heads that if they need help, they're not the best. I think that is mental health, that's in academics, that's in everything. And it saddens me to say that, but I definitely think there's still a stigma. I think it's getting better with time. And I really do think it, it also depends on leadership. When leadership acknowledges 
that wellness and mental health is important for their faculty and for their trainees, that slowly gets broken down. Thank you, Adit. Great thoughts. John, going on to the next episode that was really all around mindfulness and grief. And grief is maybe a topic that I don't know how much is talked about in your community, but I I thought it was such a great topic when it came up in the list to talk about, particularly in the line of work you're in. So perhaps you can talk a little bit about what you learned from Lori Schwanbeck. And Lori, again, is a clinical psychologist from the Bay Area who does a lot of work with clinicians around these two topics. Do you think grief is adequately expressed and processed by the physician community? And what did you take away from this episode that might lead to a better way of processing grief in the future? That's a great question, Deborah. Thank you. And, you know, just going back a few moments to what Adit was talking about in terms of the change that's happening in the field, certainly I would say that grief is generally not adequately, at least in pediatric hematology oncology, it's not adequately addressed. In fact, it's hardly addressed at all. It's prevalent. It's everywhere. We all are experiencing grief. We've all lost patients that we've cared deeply about. We all experience grief in the face of medical errors, which we all make, and if you cause harm, that causes grief. It is, it's everywhere. And yet, no one really talks about it. That's not to say that people in our field haven't found potentially healthy ways to deal with their grief, but even now, grief is dealt essentially privately. I would say that on on the large scale, there's not a lot of conversation about grief on the hospital floors. And what struck me about Lori's presentation was her discussion about disenfranchised grief. I I hadn't heard of that term. It was a new term to me, which is being unable to openly acknowledge your emotions. And the reason that disenfranchised grief is important, she cited the work of James Gross at Stanford. When we invalidate our grief response, she said that markers of stress increase in the grieving process is longer and more complicated. And there's this overlay of shame, right? Because we want to project ourselves as competent and and confident. And if you express grief, perhaps that's going to be perceived differently. And I think that this is a problem. I, you know, there's a debate in the literature whether, you know, how much grief contributes to burnout. But in my mind, I don't see how it doesn't. As you get hit again and again, sometimes Sequentially, it can be multiple episodes that cause grief happening in rapid succession. How does that not then impact your well-being and your sense of wholeness and not drive burnout? And so how can we address that? Well, you know, based on the work that she cited to James Gross, we should be talking about it and we should be open about it. And Adit just mentioned in the previous couple of minutes how leaders need to acknowledge what it is they're doing. Okay, we've all experienced moments of burnout. We've all experienced moments of challenge. And how did we address it? Acknowledging those moments and talking about how we addressed it, that opens the door for our colleagues and our trainees and our nursing colleagues and all the other professions that work with us to do the same. That's a leadership move is to be able to do that. And I think that also applies to grief. I think we need to be able to talk about it. I'm proud in our institution where we've developed our own peer support team around critical incident stress that's composed of all different members of our division, from nursing to social work, psychology, clergy, as well as physicians. And when something 
happens that drives grief, such as a death or a medical error or anything else, the team steps in and has been trained and offers opportunities for those impacted by the critical incident to get together and to discuss that in the context of a debrief, not a medical debrief where you talk about what happened to the patient, but a, de- a debrief and how did that incident impact you and impact you as a physician and as a staff member. And as someone who's a little more than a decade and a half removed from training, so not quite as recent as Adit, a lot of the senior physicians have developed their own mechanisms of dealing with grief. But I think it's really important, even those who have their own mechanisms, to come to these. And they're all voluntary. No one has to go to these debriefs. But I make a point of going if I was impacted by a critical incident. Even if at the time I don't necessarily feel like I'm having disenfranchised grief, I'm dealing with it well, because I want to talk about the experience and what I'm feeling and how I'm dealing with it, either because I need others to hear me and to talk about it or to model, this is what I'm doing and let's talk about what everyone's doing and share that. And I think that this has changed our culture over the last couple of years uh, in a positive way by discussing it more. And, And I think this is still something that is uh, shrouded in in a little bit of mystery. And I, I do think we need to make some progress on this front. Thank you for those important comments. And it, it does seem that our culture is not real comfortable talking about death and dying and about issues around grief in general. As physicians that come into contact with this more than you know a regular person on the street, it's important that that these things are being explored and discussions are being had. And I guess I, as a follow-up, I'm just curious, what, what does it do or how does it impact then your personal life when you have something so heavy happening that has happened in your professional day, losing a patient as an example, and then, you know, you have to transition to home, kids and spouses and partners and, you know, those kinds of things. How, how do you handle something like that? How do you manage that? Uh, It's really hard. I don't know that I have an answer for you. Uh, When I get home after one of those days, there's no question that my wife and uh, my kids who are teenagers, they instantly know that it's just been one of those days. Uh, They can read me very well. I I try to create a little bit of a buffer between it. So if there's a particularly difficult day, I'll go to the gym for an hour. I'll, I'll try to separate work from home temporarily a little bit just to try to create some space. But I I don't know that this needs the answer. I don't know that you can separate that kind of grief and just leave it at the at the hospital. I, I don't think that's possible. So it's a matter of how to deal with it in a healthy manner and to talk about it, not just with your colleagues, but it's okay to talk about it with your family too. Thank you for that. Such an important topic. So Adit, we're going to now talk about a real shift here, and this is on the corporate wellness front. I know that early on when um, these were all being developed, there was a lot of discussion around what is going on in corporate wellness and how can um, healthcare organizations and physician teams begin to learn from some of the really good practices that are happening in corporate wellness. And um, episode four was with a chief people officer Anouk Dablik, who has worked at some of the largest and most recognized brands around the globe. And she's shared several learnings and best practices from the corporate world. So as you listen to those comments, Adit, what did you take away from Anouk's comments about the corporate world that you think could be potentially integrated into physician teams? 
I think that what Anouk first said is a concept that can be applied to any field. And it's, it's the mantra that she works with is, if we really invest in people fully, happy people produce better and are more engaged. So this can apply to the business sense, right? But also all organizations can actually learn from this. I think that leadership is really what she focused on, that leadership needs to invest in their people. And I think that's most important, if anything, that is so relevant to people in the academic profession, especially in pediatric hematology oncology, where, you know, we just spoke about this huge risk for burnout, dealing with grief, complex medical patients, and also doing a lot of research and academic work. So when people are stressed all the time, we need to be invested in, in order to be happy. And she focused a lot on the leaders, right? The leaders as the people to break this barrier and to make this happen. I think it links back to what we were just talking about when I was previously talking, when Maggie said that the leader has to be vulnerable and show their weaknesses. She said very similar things. She said that the leader needs to show openness, transparency, and vulnerability in order for others to do the same. So it all comes from the top and you need to set the right tone within the corporation in order for people to be happy and to be well. She focused really on going to the leadership and making them uncomfortable, right? (laughs) Get comfortable with being uncomfortable is what she said. And I think that's so true. It is an uncomfortable topic to talk about wellness. And often people don't really know where to start. And so when you don't know where to start, you sometimes don't take that leap and you don't start. But you have to recognize that it doesn't have to be perfect at the beginning, right? Anytime you start a program, whether it's a medical program, a new clinic, opening up a new space, anything, it's going to be hard and there are going to be problems or there are going to be shortcomings. But that needs to be applied in wellness also in building a wellness program. Just take that leap, try something. And if it's not working, then figure out how to make it work, right? So doctors tend to be very type A. They want things to be perfect from the start. They want to know what they're doing and how they're doing it and really have all those steps in place. But that may not work when building a wellness program. And she she said that, like, you, you start something, you see if it's working, you get feedback, and then you move from there, right? And I think that's something that I really took from it. Being a type A person myself, where I want things to be perfect, like, just, just try something, right? Start building. And listen and learn and build as you go. So I think that's really, really important to think about when building wellness programs. And the other thing she said is you gotta make time. And I think that's where we all just kind of take a step back and say, we have no time, right? We're so busy as pediatric hematologists, oncologists, and I think all people in the medical profession are so busy, but you need to make time and you need to embrace that. So that's on the leadership, but it's also on people themselves to make time. So you could have this robust, amazing program that your leadership is building for you. But if you don't make the time for it, then that's kind of on you. So we all have to recognize within ourselves that our wellness is truly important. I think a lot of people look at doctors as selfless, taking care of other people's. It makes us very bad at taking care of ourselves. So we need to realize what is it that we need to take care of ourselves and make time for that. Now that can apply within the organization when they're building a program, but also in our daily lives. Like we have to make time for what makes us well. So when Anouk spoke about that, that really made me think about like, 
what time do I have and how do I use it and how do I embrace it? Whether it's my job offering me something for wellness, you know, a lecture that I want to attend about wellness, a meditation session, a writing session, which is what we have within our division. We have to make time for ourselves for what's important for us, both from the organization standpoint and from our personal standpoint. And I think I took that away. The other thing is, you know, people have a choice of where they want to work and what type of organization they want to work in. I think this applies to corporations, but also within medicine, right? In pediatric hematology, oncology, people are often leaving for pharmaceutical companies or other type of companies because that's going to offer them more wellness or more opportunities to, to take control of how they want their daily lives, you know, their balance of their lives to go. But hospitals have to do that too. Academic centers have to have to lure people in and, and really compete with that and say, what are we going to do to make our people happy? And what are we going to do to make our physicians have a sense of purpose and meaning and a flexibility to grow within our institution? So I think, you know, that's important that people have a choice and they're going to want to work in a place that cares about them. And so as a corporation, as an organization, we have, they have to show that they care about the people that work for them. Thank you so much. You know, you, you talked about vulnerability and I don't remember which podcast it was on, but I, I remember one of the, one of the respondents said, we have to equate vulnerability with strength, you know, that you can be vulnerable and strong at the same time. And you talked a lot about, Adit, about modeling, you know, really strong behavior and that, you know, sometimes you have to be vulnerable enough as a, a leader to be willing to model it, to talk about your own challenges, et cetera, so that others will do the same. And I thought that was a really critical point. John, our last podcast was with Dr. Mike Engel of UVA. In this podcast, Dr. Engel talked about so many attributes needed for physician leaders to truly help other physicians find a sense of well-being in their work. One of the questions that I posed to Dr. Engel, I'd like to get your take on as well. How should leaders be acting or modeling well-being? What does that look like? Yeah, so I think the first thing that everyone has to realize is no matter what your position is as a physician in pediatric hematology, oncology, you are in a position of leadership. Even if you're a trainee and you're a fellow, you may not feel like you're in a position of leadership, but you are, because if you're a first year fellow, the residents and the medical students are gonna be looking to you and how you're acting. The nursing staff is gonna be looking to you for your behaviors. And if you're a second or third year senior fellow, then you are now a leader of the fellows that are one year and two year behind you. And if you're junior faculty, then you are a leader of all the trainees and the staff that's there. So no matter what position you are in terms of training, you have to recognize that you are in fact in a position to influence others through your behavior. So we're all leaders, no matter where we're at in terms of our career. Listening to Mike was great. He really seems to get it as a leader. When I listened to him as a division chief, he talks the talk and I don't work in Virginia, I work in New York, but at the same time, he was very convincing in terms of how he's presenting himself as being authentic. And I think that is a great model for a leader. Mike said, leaders should see in yourself that which you wish to see in the people that you lead. So try to be well yourself and be honest when you're not. And that you know feeds back to what we were talking about before in terms of the leadership, talking about stress and burnout and grief and opening the closet and allowing people who are being led by them 
to also experience that those are not taboo topics and that that's okay. So as a leader, in terms of acting and modeling well-being, you have to walk the walk. You have to both talk the talk. You have to be open and honest and talk about what you're experiencing and what you're doing about it and what some strategies are and what works and what doesn't for you. And you also have to walk the walk. You have to recognize when you are suffering, you then have to make space and take action. And sometimes that's really hard. I think the the, the greater the position of leadership, the greater the stressors that are coming to you, right? Because if there's more people to, that are responsible to you, you're responsible for the challenges that they face. And they're going to come to you with, with their problems. And Mike talked about taking joy and having people walk in his door, be the center of his attention and offering what he can to solve their problems. That's such a positive spin on it. It's easy to be a leader and be handed all kinds of problems from other people and be like, oh, and just get overwhelmed by that. So to be able to look at it as an opportunity is really tremendous. And he talked about a phrase I liked a lot, the mental stenosis of stress. I like that. It's about how do you deal with those challenges that walk in the door? And I think that the model you want to project is I'm going to pay all of my attention to you right now. I'm going to listen to these problems and absorb them. And together, we're going to work out a problem, whether that has to do with logistics, or whether it has to do with your own well-being in your life, and just be present and be with the people that you're leading and be authentic. And uh, those, those words that he put together really uh, struck a chord with me. He had many great quotes and, and I wrote many down myself, but he certainly seems like a great coach and a mentor. I'm sure people are benefiting from all his wisdom. So as we wrap up today, John and Adit, I want to say I so appreciate your time, but I would really like to hear from each of you what the big learnings were for you as we went through this podcast series and what you really take away and what you think you, you yourself can put into practice almost immediately, maybe next week or early 2021. I think this series was incredible to really tap in on a personal level to tap into where our culture is shifting within the peds hemon community and within the medical community as a whole. And it's so timely with COVID and the pandemic here. So I think there is so much to take in from the five podcasts that we had. I think what I take away from this is that personal resilience is important, right? That's what people focus on a lot, but we really have to shift to a culture of resilience, a culture of complete resilience as a group. So, you know, one person can be very resilient, but if the group as a whole doesn't know how to be well and be resilient, then things kind of fall apart there. So how do we create that culture? And this can be, you know, within one uh, division of a hospital, or this could be within the whole PT Mon community. And I think ASFO is taking that first step in creating that culture of wellness by, by doing things like this. But we have to bring it back to our institutions and, and bring back to try to create that culture. So that will come from each individual, right? That, that wellness will come from each individual, that resiliency, but it will also come from leadership. And like John said before, every person is a leader, right? So if, if every member of the community can recognize in themselves that they are a leader, and build that culture, then as a whole, we really can, can do it together. So there is this sense of community, which is I think where we're lacking a little bit, creating a community within our little pockets of the country. 
The other thing I think was so was this quote that Lori spoke about. She said, we need to be able to target tension with attention. And I mm. thought that was so profound, right? Oftentimes we have tension and we just put it aside because it's uncomfortable to deal with and we have other things to deal with. But if we take that tension that we have that, that ultimately all together will lead to burnout and we target it and we really give it the attention that it needs, we may be able to nip it in the bud before it really becomes this explosion or this real problem within ourselves. And that needs to be from the top of the institution, but it also needs to be within ourselves. So it's a combination of personal wellness, individual wellness, but divisional wellness or community wellness. And that's really what I took. I think every single member that, that helped us with these podcasts and that spoke, while they all had very different things to say, the gist was very similar. Like your leaders need to be well, your leaders need to lead a team and you need to create this community feeling of wellness. And how you do that may be different from place to place, but that should be your goal. And that can be applied in every level of the way in every type of member of your community and really start from there, right? Create that feeling. And that ultimately will make wellness more prevalent where you work. So that was really important to me. Now, I'd like to take what I learned to my day-to-day -day life, both on a personal level and a professional level. I think it can really start by tapping into what I'm happy about every day, what makes me do the things that I do. And that's what I will do next week, tomorrow, you know, every day, try to think of, even if that day was so overwhelming, there were so many bad things that happened, like find the good that happened that day and really focus on that. And I like to tell my fellows, I said it yesterday, we run, ran a narrative writing session. Like when you've had a really bad day, just remember why you're here. Remember why you're doing what you're doing. And that should bring you back to a place of understanding how to get out of that black hole that you're in, right? And if it doesn't, then approach someone that you think it does. So if you can't find that reason, find someone that's in a good place and ask them. And that may remind you of why you're in that place. And so that's what I try to do every day, at least once a week, right? And especially in those bad days, instead of saying everything's terrible, you know, find that one good thing or that one reason that you're doing what you're doing. And then the last thing I think I have to remember is you need to advocate for yourself and for the people that you work with. You know, your leaders will not know there's a problem until you tell them there's a problem. So if you advocate and say, you know, these are the things that are the problems. This is what I think needs to be worked on. They may have no idea. And so when you advocate and when you tell them, they can figure out a way to help you work on that. And I think when I listen to people like Dr. Murphy and Dr. Engel speak, and when I hear them say things like, it's important to me to solve people's problems. When they come to me, I focus on their problems. That encourages me to say, maybe I should go to my leaders and tell them what the problems are because they may actually have no idea. So advocacy is really important. And every person, no matter if they're a medical student, a resident, a fellow, early or mid-career, they should advocate for themselves because every person is important. And without people, these people, it's, it's, you're not going to have that community. Thank you, Adid. John, what would you like to add? Yeah, I did hit a lot of the high points, but I think what I want to take away from this really was that sense that we are not victims and powerless. We do have power to control our own well-being, both through building our own stores of personal resilience, 
but that we also have the ability to impact the culture and the institution. The efficiency of practice, maybe not so much unless you're you know, fairly high up in the leadership, but the culture you absolutely can address both on you, within your sphere of influence, but also by sort of leading up the chain of command. And as Adit said, speaking to uh, those above you, both to address yourself. Can you find a way to shape your own time, to spend more time doing the things you like? And how can we address the culture that we work in and live in to be able to do that? And then on a broader scale, we are empowered to work on the culture of our specialty on a broader level. And I think part of that is evidenced by this set of podcasts and the webinar that preceded them that we're talking about it. And on a national level, ASPO is influencing the discussion. And that's not being driven by presidents of health systems, that's being driven by ASPO membership. So we as frontline people are able to not just influence our independent spheres and where we work, but the national discussion. And so uh, allow me to put in a shameless plug that I think everyone who's listened to this podcast, if you haven't yet, please come and join the well-being special interest group because we want to hear your voice and everyone has the power to have this kind of influence through that special interest group where we all have a shared mental mindset around this and we can come up with new ideas and together we can develop new and creative ways to try to influence the discussion and change the culture both on a national but also on a individual and institutional uh, level. Thank you so much. Uh, Adit and John, this has been a great conversation and thank you on behalf of the asphalt community for all you're doing to push these conversations forward. And I'm glad you put the plug in, otherwise I was gonna ask you to do that. So I think everyone now knows where they can go to get more information and to get involved. So again, this has been an interview with Dr. Adit Tal and Dr. Jonathan Fish. And we are thrilled to have you. It was a great conversation. We look forward to more to come from the Wellbeing SIG. Thank you, Deborah. Appreciate all the efforts that you put into these podcasts as well. Thank you so much. It was so lovely to be here today. This has been another installment of ASPOcast, the road to clinician well-being. To get more information on the American Society of Pediatric Hematology Oncology, please visit www.aspo.org. In addition to this podcast series, the most recent webinar on physician wellness can be found on the website under the Knowledge Center tab.